We have a family Sunday, so kids, you're staying with us. And uh, Trudy, I forgot to get out the, uh, the stuff from back there. You got it. Okay, so if you need a, a little ex- extra distraction, maybe some toys or some S-N-A-C-K-S for your kids, back there underneath the TV, you can find those helpful things there. Now, last week, one of you kids put this in the, the offering plate, or maybe it was up here. Uh, I can't remember where I got it, but it is, it's a joke, and uh, I want to share this with all of you guys, because I thought this was a pretty good joke, so are you ready, Shelby? Okay. How do cows stay up to date? They read the moose paper. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Give her a hand. That's a good joke. All right, so... Um, Music team, I really enjoyed the, uh, the music you led us in this morning. Be Thou My Vision is one of my favorite songs. 1,500 years old, an old Irish hymn. 1,500 years, isn't that amazing? 504 years ago today, Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation into action, nailing his 95 Thesis to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. So we got 1,500-year-old hymn, 500-year-old Reformation Day that we're celebrating today, and a bunch of young people in the room to add some spice to the service. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into God's Word. Lord, thank you so much for Martin Luther and uh, the courageous ministry that he started 504 years ago. Thank you for using him and John Calvin and other courageous leaders to reform your church. Thank you that you call us not only to be reformed, but to be reforming. And so I pray, pray, Lord, that you would be reforming us, your people, here this morning, that you would take your ancient word and you would form us and shape us, reform us as a church so that we could be more like what you intend our church and the church to be. Thank you for the gift that is the book of Acts, the great story that it is, all the truths that it reveals to us about what your intentions for the church are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so grab a Bible, open it up to the book of Acts, and uh, if you're using one of the pew Bibles, you're going to find Acts uh, chapter 3 on page 911. So 911 is the page that you're looking for here. So far, in the book of Acts, we have gone through chapters 1 and 2. It took us three weeks to get through chapter 2. We're going to do all of chapter 3 today because it's just one big chunk of story. And that's how Acts is going to work. Sometimes we'll really slow down. Sometimes we'll speed up. As I look at the end of Acts, I'm like, i got to do like four chapters at a time, which is impossible, right? I would just read them, and then we'd be out of time. But that's the way that the book of Acts works. Here's what's happened so far. Jesus is resurrected. <coughs> Excuse me. He's appeared to a whole bunch of his disciples. He has given them instructions. He's given them a mission. Go out into the world, make disciples of Jesus, baptize them, teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, and he's going to promise to be with us. That's the mission. But he says to them, you are to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. He says, wait in the most dangerous place in the world for you right now because the people who are in charge of Jerusalem killed Jesus they want to kill you. And for weeks, they wait in hiding. And then we saw on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God invades the church, that, that at that moment, 
God changes the way that he deals with humanity. So the Spirit of God had been at work for all of history. He was there in the beginning. Genesis 1 tells us the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep as everything is being created. And yet, on that day of Pentecost, the way that the Holy Spirit of God works with humans changes fundamentally. So that from that day onward, as people become Christians, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of them. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit marks you as a Christian, seals you as a child of God, empowers you for the work that God is calling you to do as a Christian, and we saw how that empowerment showed itself in a very unique and powerful way on that first day of Pentecost, where the apostles, those 12 guys who are closest to Jesus, they suddenly are filled with the Holy Spirit and are able to speak in languages that they have not learned. If we go to the the map on the next slide or the second to the next slide, the book of Acts tells us that people from all of these named regions were in Jerusalem at that time, and they heard their home languages being spoken by the apostles who had never bothered to learn those languages. This was a miraculous gift given to the apostles, and it served a specific purpose, to jumpstart the church and to get the people of Jerusalem to listen to Peter's first sermon. So everybody comes rushing, what's going on? How can we understand these people? Peter stands up and he preaches his first sermon. Peter, the fisherman, the blue-collar guy, the guy who probably barely passed fourth grade, he stands up in front of thousands of people and he he preaches his first sermon. And we're told that 3,000 people come to faith in Christ as a result of that first sermon. After that, there's a a small amount of time as the church uh, kind of regroups. They They think, what happened today? What happened yesterday? And then we pick up in Acts chapter 3 with what takes place next. Acts chapter 3, page 911 in your Black Pew Bibles. Now, Peter and John, so that would be John as the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So um, the Jewish day basically started at 6 a.m., so the ninth hour would be what time? Math on Sunday morning, 3 o'clock. Right. So mid-afternoon. They're going up to pray. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms or to beg of those entering the temple. Now, because this is a family Sunday, you expect this. We're going to have to do a little bit of acting out. So I'm going to need some volunteers. And by volunteers, I mean I'm going to actually call on you right now. So don't worry. You don't have to do any speaking. Some of you, this is going to be really uncomfortable. My first volunteer I need is Mitch. Mitch, would you come up here? Come on up. Come on up. Don't worry. You don't, you don't got to speak. Don't, I took you by a surprise there. It's okay. Next volunteer, I need Adam. Come on up, Adam. All right. And can I have Oliver, too? All right. And then uh, let's go with Brooklyn. Brooklyn, can you come up? Don't worry. You don't have to speak. Come on up. All right. So I need you guys all down here on the bottom level. I need Brooklyn up here. 
Brooklyn, you come up here. You just stand here like this with your arms out and, and look beautiful, okay? So we are told that in Jerusalem there is a gate called the beautiful gate. Here is our beautiful gate, all right? Very lovely. You're doing a great job. All right. Then we're also told that Peter and John come across this lame guy who needs to be carried to the gate every day so he can beg. So Mitch is our lame guy. And <laughs> we're going to have you guys carry... No. We're going to have Adam. You're going to be our lame guy. All right. So sit down on the floor. Your legs don't work. Nothing. Mitch and Oliver, would you guys pick him up, carry him up the steps? There'd actually be a lot more steps in Jerusalem. Carry him up the steps and set him in front of the gate called Beautiful, please. All right. Good. Thank you. You guys are done. You can go back to your seat. No, no. Lame guy, you can't walk. Sit, da- sit down there. What? Come on. Still doing okay, Beautiful Gate? All right. Great. So you don't have to lay down. You're not like a corpse or anything. To, it's... It's just that your feet and ankles don't work, all right? So you're going to sit with your hands out like this because you're begging, all right? Now, every day, all day, Adam, you just sit there in front of the beautiful gate and beg for money. How's that sound? Is that a good life? That's not a good life. No, not at all. So along come Peter and John, and they strike up a conversation with the beggar, and they, they heal the beggar. And amazingly, the beggar jumps up, he jumps up, and he starts walking and leaping and praising God. All right, good. Give him a hand. You guys can go back in. I wish you guys could have seen Adam and Oliver's face when I said that Mitch was going to be the beggar that they were going to carry up. Mitch, thank you for helping. Appreciate it. All right, so let's put our picture of the temple up here. So this is an artist's rendition of what the temple in Jerusalem looked like at the time that this story is taking place. Outside of this little wall is this place called the Court of the Gentiles. So if you were not a Jew, you could go up on the Temple Mount, but you could not go inside past the Court of the Gentiles. And then there's this inner area called the Court of the Women. If you're a Jewish woman, you're allowed to go that far in, but not any farther than that. And most scholars think that the beautiful gate is the gate separating the Court of the Women from the, the external Court of the Gentiles. Nowhere in the planning or the um, description of the temple in the Old Testament is there anything called a beautiful gate. So I think what's happened is it had another name, But it was such a beautiful gate that people just started calling it the beautiful gate, all right? And that's where this story takes place. It's probably that main gate on the east side as you go in to the temple there. So imagine our our lame beggar guy. We don't have any idea what what his name is, right? He sits there all day, every day, begging from people who are going to the temple to worship. He's probably bored out of his mind. He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything. He just says the same thing over and over again. Now, we don't have many beggars in Versailles, but if you go down to Miller Lane to go shopping, you are guaranteed to come across somebody on a corner begging, right? Unless the weather is really, really bad. Somebody is out there, probably multiple somebodies begging. What do you do in those situations? Do you um, drive by as fast as you can? 
Do you maybe give them a few coins, maybe give them a 20, get out, have lunch with them, share their story with them? Probably many of us, maybe most of us in this room, we are, when we come up to the corner, we are suddenly very diligent to be looking around for traffic to make sure that we don't cause an accident, right? You know what I'm talking about. Because you're not going to look at the guy, you're going to look around, pretend like you're being super diligent with the traffic. This guy, sitting in front of the beautiful gate at the temple, has to deal with that kind of ignoring him, um, probably hating him, mocking him. He's had to do this for four decades at least. He did not do anything to ruin his feet. It's not like as a teenager he was dared to jump off his high building and he broke his ankles and never recovered. We are told later in the chapter that he has been lame from birth and he's at least 40 years old. 40 years every day sitting in front of the temple as the people of God walk by in order to go worship the God who made him lame from birth. So many things must be going through that guy's mind every day. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, to get a little money. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, this is surprising because we tend to ignore people who are begging, but Peter and John, they engage with him, and they say, look at us, pay attention to us. Now, he thinks he's hit the jackpot. So he's going to give them all the attention that he can, because if somebody wants to talk to him, wants to pay attention to him, they're probably going to give him some money. He's going to be very disappointed, though, because Peter is going to say, we don't have any money. But then he's going to receive a surprise that he could not imagine. He's going to go from great disappointment to great surprise, and I'm just going to read the next few verses as one big chunk. This is starting with verse 6. Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, Solomon's porch. So another picture for us up here. This is zoomed out farther so you can see that that court of the Gentiles is really a big place, big open area. That eastern gate of the temple, that beautiful gate, points right out to a covered colonnade called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch. It actually, the, it stretches all the way around, but it's got different names depending on where you are around it. So he's been healed. People are recognizing that something miraculous has happened. They all come rushing together to see what happens. And maybe because it's sunny, they, they hang out underneath the covered porch there called Solomon's porch. That's what has happened. This guy who has been lame since birth is not only standing up, he's walking around, leaping, 
and praising God. So this tells us that not only has God miraculously physically healed this man, but it's like he's taken this this data download and and stuck it into his mind so that suddenly he knows how to do these things. He can walk. How long does it take somebody to learn how to walk if they've never walked? A long time. But he's up, walking, leaping around. This is this is miraculous. And he's been there for 40 years. Everybody recognizes him. Like there's, there's no mistaking the fact that this is the guy who's been begging for decades, and he's healed. They can't deny it. They want to know what is going on here. Now we're going to see the purpose of this miracle, because it wasn't just to heal this guy. Now that is amazing. It is, it is miraculous. You know, if if we had somebody in this room right now who was born crippled in a serious, obvious way, and just like that, God restored and, and fixed what was wrong, that would be amazing, right? But the purpose of this miracle is actually much bigger than the healing of this guy. The purpose of this miracle is to bring people together, to open their ears, to open their hearts, so that Peter can preach his second sermon and declare to them the far better news, better than being healed, better than suddenly miraculously being able to walk, the far better news of forgiveness of sin, salvation through Jesus Christ. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, that is the great crowd, he addressed the people. You imagine trying to quiet everybody down. There's no speaker system, right? He's probably standing up on something, being as loud as he can. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Seems obvious. It's pretty wonderful. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, that means our our religious purity, we have made him walk? Now, this is... This is amazing to me, because Peter could be an absolute rock star at this point, and yet he's humble. He takes the attention away from himself, and he wants to point it toward Jesus. Now, this is not normal for Peter. Peter has been arrogant and proud and full of himself, thinking that he's better than all of the other disciples. For three years, he follows Jesus, and he just keeps making foolish, proud failure decisions. Peter is a different man now, though. Peter has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He has been filled and sealed by the Holy Spirit. He is a new creation in Christ, and his now default in this situation is not, look at how amazing I am, look what I did. It's instead, I'm nothing. This is all about Jesus. He is completely transformed. The gospel has transformed Peter fundamentally. There's a pastor, giant church in North Carolina, and this week he put this tweet out. Following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. What would it be like to see the you that God sees? Utter garbage. If 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 following Jesus doesn't change us, if it only reveals who we've always been, I am hopeless. I have no hope at all. 
Peter would read this and say, are you, are you insane? Look at me. Look at the transformation in me. I am a new creation in Christ. I was a dead loser. Now I am alive. I'm a son of God. The Spirit has filled me. I am transformed. I was so selfish. I was so proud and arrogant. Now I am humble. He says that in all humility. And it's, it just completely changes him. If you are believing this kind of Americanized church message of, look, you're wonderful the way you are, and all you need is to basically shed some of the skin, and and we can see who you've been from the beginning, and you're beautiful and perfect and a little princess, you are not believing the gospel. You are believing something that leaves you feeling good for the moment and without any hope of real change or eternity. Peter has encountered the God-man and has been utterly changed. Paul would later write these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he's simply been revealed for the wonderful person that he has been all along. Not he's a better version of himself, but he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. The new has come. And we see that in Peter in this amazing sermon. So back to Acts, chapter 3, verse 13. He's now going to start explaining things to the people. He's going to go back to their Jewish roots, and he's going to tell what, for many of us, is familiar parts of the story. He's going to rely heavily on Genesis. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. All right, so that's the way that the God of the Bible is referred to all throughout the Old Testament. He is the one who identified himself to Abraham. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. So this is similar to that first uh, sermon that he preached, right? He goes right into it. So look, you killed Jesus. He's not trying to just win followers here. So this God of our fathers, he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied the presence of Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor who oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. And he had decided to release him. So Pilate wanted to let him go. But you denied the holy and righteous one. So This crowd has come together to see the amazing miracle. Peter stands up and says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So Pilate, in order to try to make a a convenient out, he says, okay, I can release to you Jesus, who I don't find anything wrong with, or I can give you Barabbas, who is this crazy uh, leader of an insurrection, murderer, rebel guy. Which do you want? Do you want Jesus or do you want Barabbas? And they choose Barabbas. This crowd that is now wondering what's going on and listening to Peter, they are implicated in the death of Jesus because they were there 50 days earlier as Jesus was condemned. They are the ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, until they were hoarse and red in the face. Peter says, it's you guys. And then 15, you killed the author of life. That's kind of a poetic thing to say, right? 
You killed the author of life. Notice the claim there, though. This is not just a man promoted to stardom or prophet status or savior of the world title. He's saying Jesus is the author of life. This is, this is reinforcing that Trinitarian idea, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when we go back to Genesis 1, we've got the Father speaking everything into existence. We've got the Spirit there, presence over the face, face of the deep. And we've got Jesus here referred to as the author of life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and to this we are all witnesses. He's saying, you can't deny this, all right? Hundreds of people have seen the risen Christ. As I think about these words, you killed the author of life, I think of one of my favorite songs that we sing here sometimes. It's by Matt Boswell, and there's a line in here that says, come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. Slain by death, the God of life. God gave himself, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the author of life, the God of life, gave himself to cover our sin debt. How, how does somebody who creates all life die in the first place? Our minds start to short out as we try to figure this out. But this is what Peter is saying. Paul would also say this about Jesus in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Paul says this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. That means he's the, the ruler. He's the, the, the big brother of everybody. For by him still speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is the author of life, the creator of all things, and he's the point of all things. They're created for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The reason our universe is ordered and predictable and we can study it scientifically and come to conclusions, Jesus holds it all together. Now, Peter doesn't explain all of this. He, he simply accuses them of killing the author of life and that he was then raised from the dead and that the apostles are all witnesses of this. Peter and his buddies know without a doubt that Jesus is alive. They have seen him. They have heard him, they have touched him, they have eaten with him, they have spent time with him since his resurrection. As you might imagine, the way that he immediately goes in and accuses these people of killing the author of life ticks off some people. Next week, we'll see how their anger works its way out. But for right now, let's go back and See what else he says. Verse 16. And his name, that is Jesus, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So, again, go back to the idea of the name of Jesus. It's not simply the name. Like you could have a friend of you know Central American descent, and his name is Jesus. His name doesn't 
heal people and save people. It's not just the word. It's the name of Jesus means the person and work of Jesus. Who he is, what has he done, that is summarized with the idea of the name of Jesus. And it is the person and work of Jesus. Specifically, here he says, faith in the person and work of Jesus, the name of Jesus, that has healed this man. Here's a question you might want to ask, though. Whose faith healed the man? We are not told that this guy said anything other than, please give me a few coins. It's Peter's faith that heals this man. Now, there are various huckster faith healers out there, and one of their common things that they'll do is they'll throw a big worship service or crusade or something, and they'll, they'll have people come forward to be healed, and they'll say, if you just have enough faith, God will heal you. In fact, God has to. He's obliged to heal you if you have enough faith. But if you don't have enough faith, you won't be healed. So if you walk away from that healing crusade unhealed, it's, it's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. And yet that is not what we see, at least in this passage, right? We are not told that the beggar knows anything about Jesus, trusts in Jesus, believes the right things about Jesus, has repented of his sins. In fact, we're not even told that he's saved. We're just told that he is healed physically, and that somehow it seems to be it's the faith of Peter that did this. I wonder if Peter was surprised, because he doesn't seem like he would be surprised. He seems like he knew what he was doing. He walks up and he says, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Can you imagine the, the butterflies in his stomach as he's getting ready to say, is this going to work? Am I just going to look like a fool? Maybe I should say it quietly so that nobody hears it if it doesn't work. And then imagine the surprise of Peter when the guy actually jumps up because it worked. Verse 17. He goes on. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Now, that, that could be insulting. He's calling them ignorant, but he's actually giving them mercy. He's giving them a way out. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, meaning all the, New Test all the Old Testament prophets, that his Christ, his Messiah, his Deliverer, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. The Jewish people were not expecting the Messiah to come as a suffering servant. They expected him to come as a conquering king, a military and political commander. And Jesus came as a servant who suffered and died. And Peter says, look, it's understandable that you missed this. Your rulers missed it. Your teachers missed it. It was in the Old Testament. The prophets of the Old Testament told you many times to expect the Messiah to be a suffering servant, but it was easy to miss. And we're not told he says this next part, but if he didn't say it, I'm sure he was thinking it. I missed it, too. Remember all those times where Peter basically says, okay, Lord, is now the time for the kingdom? Are we going to take him? Or when the disciples are fighting over, okay, who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom? I want to be the second in command. No, I want to be the second in command. All this. They were missing the point, even in their three years with Jesus. So, of course, the regular population missed the point. Jesus himself predicted this kind of thing. He said in Mark 8, 31, 
And he, Jesus, began to teach them, that is the disciples, that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. All right, so this is, this is chapter 8 of Mark. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. He's saying, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to rise again. And yet it just went right over their heads. They didn't hear it. They didn't comprehend it. He said this plainly. Peter, same Peter, took him aside and rebuked him, began to rebuke him. Jesus, you can't say this. Watch your mouth, Jesus. That's what he's doing. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Peter now, the man who was rebuked by Jesus and called Satan for not believing that Jesus was going to suffer and die and rise again, is now standing in front of thousands of his Jewish brothers trying to convince them that they have fallen for the same foolish deception that he had fallen for. I hope this is encouraging to you. Some of you, you have certain things in your past that you're so ashamed of I can't believe I was so stupid, or I did that, or I believed that, or I lived that way for years. And when you see other people in that same trap, there's this thing inside of you that says, if I, if, if, if I confront them in this, even in a loving way, I'm being a hypocrite, because I was stuck in that for so many years myself. Here we have Peter as a beautiful example for us of someone who was a fool, stuck in a false way of thinking of the world rescued by Jesus, and now is strongly confronting people who are stuck in the same thing that he was in. He's like, I don't care if you think I'm a hypocrite. Jesus has saved me. I, I rebuked Jesus himself. I was such a fool. But let me tell you the truth of who he is. He doesn't let his embarrassment of his past, he doesn't let his fear of being considered a hypocrite keep him from sharing this truth with his Jewish brothers. We tend to think that our weakness and our failures disqualify us from ministry, disqualify us from speaking into somebody's life. Peter's life shows us that it is his failure, redeemed through Jesus, that actually qualifies him for this speech. It's hard for us to imagine a bigger hypocrite than Peter as we look at our own lives. He promised to stand with Jesus. As he's saying, you killed the author of life. You, uh, Pilate tried to get Jesus off the hook. You asked for a murder instead. What was Peter doing at that very moment? He said, Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll never leave you. And then this little girl says, hey, aren't you with him? No, no, I'm not with him. Scary little girl. He goes running away. Three times that night, he denies Jesus. And now he can stand up because he's transformed in Jesus and he can say, look, I know I'm just like you guys. You killed the author of life. I killed the author of life. He has saved me. He can save you. Do you love people enough to tell them the truth that they need to hear? Even if it's embarrassing for you, even if you risk being judged as a hypocrite, 
confront and say, hey, you can't tell me that because you did the same thing when you were a kid. Are you willing to take that kind of risk in order to tell them the truth? Verse 19. So he's confronted them in their sin, but he's not going to leave them wallowing there in their sin and hopelessness. He's going to invite them now to new life. Repent, so turn from your old life. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, covered. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So, he clearly accuses them of having a hand in the death of Jesus and then says, but there's hope. Repent of your sin. Trust in Christ. He will send times of refreshing. Jesus will return. Now, it's we're still waiting for Jesus to return, right? But Jesus is going to return. Heaven's got him for right now, but he's going to come back. And Peter says it's a time for restoring all things, for making all things new. That's the hope that he gives them. It's a blessing that he offers them. He doesn't just blast them. He blesses them. So Peter is pointed forward to this time of restoring. Now he's going to point backwards, give a little supportive argument. He's going to point to Moses the Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, great deliverer of the people from slavery in Egypt, receiver of the Ten Commandments and the law of God. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. So he's saying, look, even if you go back to Moses, Moses was telling you that there's going to be this great prophet similar to him, but greater than him who's going to come. And anybody who listens to this guy is going to be safe, and anybody who rejects this guy is going to be rejected. And then he mentions Samuel. So Samuel is the first of this group of this long line of prophets in the Old Testament. And each one of them, Peter says, is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the point of all these Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is not just the one like Moses who receives the law and delivers it, but he's the lawgiver. He's better than Moses. He's not just the one who delivers the people out of Egypt and slaves, but he sets spiritual slaves free. Moses performed miracles, splitting the sea and, and all of that, but Jesus performs even greater miracles of bringing dead people to life in Christ. Peter's pointing at all of this stuff and, and hoping that they get it and referring to the, the law and the prophets, which is the summary of all the Old Testament, saying it's all about Jesus. And then he's got to bring in Abraham because you can't convince the Jewish people that this is all God's plan unless you go back to Abraham. And if you've tracked with us through Genesis, you know that multiple times in the life of Abraham and then repeated throughout the Bible, is this promise that an offspring of Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. And it's intentionally singular. It's not the offspring, 
plural is in all of the offspring of Abraham. It's one person, the offspring. Peter goes back to Genesis now and makes that case for Jesus. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You guys have heard this your whole life. Some offspring of Abraham, he says, is going to bless the whole world. And I got to tell you, it's Jesus. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, meaning sent him to the Jewish people first. He's going to send the message to the rest of the world too, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he kind of sticks him in the side there at the end there. Don't forget, you're wicked. But you can turn from your wickedness. Or more accurately, what he just said, you can be turned from your wickedness. Because if you're just going to try to clean your life up, you're not going to make it. But Jesus comes to turn you from your wickedness. So he leaves them with that hope. That's the end of his sermon. That's all that's recorded. Well, I just spoke for like 40 minutes on what was a 30-second sermon, right? Probably there was more to it. That's all that's recorded for us. But let me give you a glimpse into what happens. These are the next few verses. This is what we're going to talk about next week. Chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the two main religious rivals, they came upon them. All right, So the, the guard and the priests and the religious leaders, they came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Like that's the crime. Teaching people in Jesus, there's the resurrection of dead. And they arrested them for that crime, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now notice, our method of counting has changed. Sermon number one, goes from about 120 people to 3,000 people. Sermon number two, they're like, okay, there's just too many people to count. We're, we're going to count the men. So we see this sometimes in the Old Testament. We see it like in Jesus, you know, feeding the 5,000. It's like, okay, we're, we're going to count the men. How many, how many wives, how many kids are in the church? Are we talking about a church of 20,000, 30,000 people at this point? We have no idea, but we've gone to 5,000 men who have placed their faith in Christ after this second service, second sermon. The church of Jesus is growing by leaps and bounds, and the authorities are not pleased. This is out of control, so they arrest him. We're going to see next week how that arrest plays out in an interesting way. There are some dramatic arrests in the New Testament, the book of Acts. This is one that, that ends uh, in, a, in a pretty interesting and unique way. All right. What are you to do with this? Is this just a nice story? Wow. Peter, he healed this guy. He had faith. He stood up. He preached this great sermon. You got thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. So what? I mean, did we just learn a history lesson? I want to encourage you guys to take this as an example and as an encouragement to you. 
that if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit living inside of you, indwelling you, empowering you, you are called, through the Great Commission, all Christians are called, you are called to be making disciples of Jesus, and Jesus has equipped you with what is necessary to do it. Peter didn't get sent off to public presentation school. He didn't go get his master's in public speaking. He just He's filled with the Spirit, and Fisherman Peter stands up and preaches these sermons, and thousands come to Christ. Not only in spite of his failures and the very things that he challenges us on, but through his weakness turned into strength, his failure turned into victory because of the redemptive work of Jesus. You and I have failed in many ways. We are weak in many ways. We are ashamed of things in our past, and we would just prefer that those things stay quiet in the dark in the past. And yet God may be preparing to use you in precisely those previous failures in order to bring people into the kingdom of God. There may be people in your life right now who maybe they know your past, maybe they need to hear your past, and they need to hear how you have been transformed by Jesus. They need to hear how your story is similar to the story that they're currently stuck in. Let me encourage you. No matter how messed up your past was, Jesus can use it. He can use your testimony to bring people to faith in Christ. But it's not your testimony that does it. It's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and through the Word of your testimony in order to share the truth of the gospel with people who need to hear it. Who in your life needs to hear the truth of the gospel? Are you willing to share that with them? Even if it means coming across maybe as a hypocrite or exposing your hypocrisy? Are you willing to risk that? Are you willing to lean into that former weakness now redeemed by Jesus so that you can share the gospel of Jesus with somebody? Let's pray. Father, thank you, for, thank you for the young folks in the room with us today. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you love them dearly, and uh, you are already in the process of saving many of them. Some of them have come to faith in you. Others are hearing the gospel faithfully, and their, their hearts are getting primed and ready to turn to you in repentance and faith, Lord. We pray that you would use us older folks in this room to accurately lovingly, consistently proclaim the gospel of Jesus to these younger folks. Lord, I pray for uh, all of us in this room that you would use us in our weaknesses, past and present, that we would stand on the redemptive and rescuing work that you've done in us, not in our goodness or how we think we did in the past, how great we are or anything, but Lord, may we stand on the fact that you have redeemed us, that you have rescued us, that you have caused us to be reborn, regenerated. You've sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and you've sent us out, and we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to put on a facade. But we can be honest with people, especially we can be honest with them about how you have saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.